You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Nick Correa. It's Thursday, April 30th, 2020. We have Real Vision's Ed Harrison and Roger Hurst standing by to give their macro analysis. But before we go to them, let's go over today's biggest stories in markets. Starting out, China's PMIs today were very interesting and tell us a lot, not just about the Chinese economy, but about dislocations in global supply chains as well. While manufacturing PMI was down, both the manufacturing and non-manufacturing PMI were just above 50 indicating a technical, if marginal, expansion. Whereas the new export PMI plummeted to 33.5, only a few points higher than the first initial shock in February. The divergence between new export orders and the other PMIs underscores just how weak international demand is. It's a sign that economies around the globe are reopening at different paces, and that bottlenecks are piling up in the supply chain. And that's not the only indicator that should give bulls pause. Today, the Bureau of Economic Analysis released data showing that personal spending in the U.S. was down 7.5% for March compared to last month. That number came in much higher than the 5.1% figure forecasted by economists. Meanwhile, initial joblessness claims came in at a staggering 3.8 million. 300,000 more people were laid off than expected. One faint glimmer of hope in this week's initial claims data is that it was lower than last week. American workers are certainly under the gun, but workers around the globe are feeling the strain as well. Different countries have taken different approaches in their battle against the coronavirus, whether it was total shutdowns, business relief packages, the amount of testing conducted, and so on. And some early data from the Brookings Institute can help us to begin to understand if and how any of these policy moves have softened the blow to their economies. They examined 20 different wealthy countries, their policy moves in response to the pandemic, and how that's affected labor markets. 11.9% of workers across these 20 countries, which amounts to 58 million workers, have applied for unemployment. The United States has the highest percentage of unemployment claims as a share of their workforce, 14.8%. Of course, unemployment claims don't always truly represent the amount of displaced workers affected by the pandemic. Here we can see the unemployment claims stacked against those who are beneficiaries of short-term or business support programs to help us round out our understanding of a low-end estimate of worker displacement. Of these 20 countries, those hit hardest economically and have higher deaths per capita are the US, the UK, France, and Switzerland. The average deaths per million people in this group of countries is 135, and these four countries sit above that average. And despite major fiscal spending, many more people have ended up on unemployment or on short-term work. And 
Displaced workers, such as those with reduced hours, may not reap any of the benefits of these fiscal programs. France's official unemployment numbers are low, at 0.4%, but that doesn't include the 8.7 million workers on temporary unemployment. 28.5% of the labor force right now are short-term or business support program beneficiaries. Employers can reduce or eliminate an employee's hours this way, and the government will cover 84% of wages for unworked time, so displacement is high. Switzerland is in a similar boat, with 0.4% unemployment claims, but with 23.5% as beneficiaries of short-term or business support programs. They've also found that in countries that kept their economies open, like Sweden and Iceland, didn't necessarily fare better economically. In Iceland, they had robust testing, 12.7% tests per capita when the average in this group is 1.2%, but they didn't come out with a plan to subsidize businesses until April 21st. 9.7% of their workforce had filed for unemployment. Sweden, on the other hand, had done 0.9% testing per capita, and their number of deaths is 198 per million. 1.9% Swedish citizens registered for unemployment, and an additional 3.9% for short-term benefits. But in New Zealand and in Australia, they've demonstrated great success in curtailing the spread of the virus and may not have the same long-term economic suffering that other countries will endure. Both New Zealand and Australia have a low number of deaths per capita, three per million people. In New Zealand, only an additional 1.6% applied for unemployment. And in Australia, it was 3.8%. The business relief package that New Zealand designed has already benefited 58.9% of New Zealand's workforce by keeping employees connected to their employers. They're accomplishing this by having introduced a COVID-19 wage subsidy. Employers or self-employed persons whose revenues decreased by 30% or more will automatically receive 585 New Zealand dollars or 320 US dollars per full-time employee and less per part-time employee every week for 12 weeks. Australia introduced a similar wage subsidy program later than New Zealand. $1,500 every two weeks for employers with substantial revenue decreases due to the pandemic. So the percentage of beneficiaries is unknown yet. But the Grattan Institute estimates the program will keep official unemployment between 10% and 16% as opposed to a projected 17% and 28%. All in all, the preliminary conclusions we could draw upon here is that how the business relief programs are structured matters to a country's projected unemployment and policy that is designed to effectively keep intact employee-employer relationships will soften the economic blow of coronavirus. Now I'll send it over to Ed Harrison and Roger Hurst for their analysis. Ed, what's going on? Thanks, Nick. I'm here in the Washington, D.C. area, and I'm talking to Roger Hurst, our managing editor over in the U.K. Good to talk to you, Roger. Good to see you as well, Ed. How's it going? It's going well. And, you know, actually, I saw your um, RVDB with the ash yesterday. I thought it was really an amazing analysis, both of the real economy and sort of, uh, you know, what you could take away from it in terms of uh, markets. I don't know if we're going to be able to be as good today as you guys were yesterday. It was really impressive. Thanks. Thanks very much. You know, um, tell me what's on your mind today, because I know that you were saying earlier today you were already tweeting out before the markets even opened that there was going to be a down day. 
Yeah, I mean, it's the 30th of April, so it's the last of the month. And um, the S&P, as of last night's close, was up 13.5%, whereas the uh, 10-year future was only up 34 basis points. So if you have your normal rebalancing, you'd want to be selling equities and buying bonds, and that seems to be what's happening. So it may be the beginning of a trend, but because it's the last of the month, I'm not reading too much into today's move apart from it just looks like a classic rebalancing for now. Right. And what about tomorrow? What what would that look like for you, uh, given that rebalancing now that you're starting out the, the new month? That's a lot harder one to, to guess, because normally you want to be buying into the winners. So in some ways, people should be looking to buy into the tech stocks again in the morning. But it's the, the first of the month flows are, are always a lot harder. And it's only really you can only really second guess end of the month flows when you get a very clear cut um, relative move, as we have on this occasion. We got a re relatively clear cut move at the end of March as well. Um, but I always basically say that the first of the month and the last of the month are often some of the biggest moves of the month, but they're also the ones you want to extrapolate the least. So don't take them too much, take them with a pinch of salt. They can carry on with the momentum, but take them with a pinch of salt. Yeah, when you talk about momentum, the first thing I think about is that we were up to that 62% retracement level that we've been talking about. And I saw that you were talking uh, about even 4,000 on the S&P as sort of an upside if this continues on. Um, what are your thoughts now about that paradigm, the ability for central banks to to go ballistic, essentially, and, uh, and, and take us to the upside versus the real economy, you know, putting us, uh, giving us a little bit more downside. Well, I think it's something which I've been writing and talking about for a couple of years, and um, I put on um, in the comment section actually yes this morning about a piece I did for Affinitiv where I went through this. And what, what's basically been happening is, you know, I've been arguing that valuations don't matter in the short run, as in this is not a market that's been driven by active managers. Active managers care about valuation. They've not been in the driving seat for a long time. Last year, we actually saw that the assets under management, the passive and the rules-based funds. This is risk parity, minvol, all that sort of stuff. They became the, over 50%, according to some sources. But certainly, the marginal players have become those sorts of funds. They play by different rules. They don't play by valuation rules. It's the reason why valuation and active managers have, have basically underperformed the market for so long. And because of that, is, is the reason why I'm sitting here thinking, OK, should I look at this market and assume that it's going to follow the pattern of the previous 100 years where a major economic event leads to a major sell-off, a rebound of 50, 62 percent, something in that region, then rolls over, takes out the lows and makes a significant new low? Or should we see what we were seeing, and we saw it particularly clearly in the period post-September of last year, where with the repo operations of the Fed, the S&P went up when repo operations increased the Fed's balance sheet. It went down when they decreased it. And then the first time they took the balance sheet down for two consecutive weeks was the week that we crashed. It was also the week that COVID went global. But I think that the two were, were related. So I've been looking with one eye at that history where we're seeing these markets that you know have been basically influenced by central banks. And then I'm looking with the other eye at the long-term history, which suggests that you know you get your 62% retracement and roll over. And I think it's fair to say the jury's out. We don't know what, which way it goes one way or the other at the moment. Well, you know, let's talk about this in terms of the real economy, because I think that's one of the things that you were talking to Ash about, this whole model of, you know, we had the uh, the liquidation event. Uh, we're sort of in a hope of phase right now. And eventually, the real economy over the longer term is actually going to matter. And so we got a lot of data today 
from the real economy, uh, suggesting that now we're moving into that that phase where the real economy is going to start to take over, especially to the degree that we go longer. So we got a negative 4.8% from the U.S. on a quarter-on-quarter annualized basis. We got 3.8% from the uh, from the Eurozone, but that's actually not annualized. It's actually an absolute fall. So it's greater than what we saw in the U.S. So that's telling you the real economy is falling over. Now, I, I was uh, on Twitter and I was talking to Lakshman Akuthain about this. And when we think about a depression, we think about the three Ds of a depression, uh, the depth, the diffusion, and the duration. We definitely have the depth and diffusion, but we're not going to get to the duration. And from my perspective, uh, where the rubber hits the road in terms of what you're talking about is about the duration. But that is the economic data that we're seeing today translating long enough of a time period that these algos are not um, going to be able to resist the, the downward momentum that these numbers will show. Yes, I think so. You know, there's, there's a couple of technical factors I think we have to throw out there as well. If you look on the NASDAQ, there's a very big gap that opened up at the very, very beginning of this move. We're not far from there. So, yeah, we could see that getting filled as well. But I think overall, it does go back to the longevity of this whole um, of the whole impact. And I think with that, we can start to look at some of the places where there's a so-called recovery taking place and think about how that data is starting to shape up. And, you know, there is ways of looking at China without looking at the official data. You can look at these alternative data, alt data, which are data which are sourced from external sources effectively and which we can, to a certain extent, trust. And I think what you can see there, and I mentioned this yesterday, is we're getting a rebound, but we're getting to a rebound which is not to full capacity. We're getting a rebound to sub-full capacity. And therefore, what we really need to see across all economies when they rebound is to beyond where they were at the beginning of this year and where they were at 2019. So far, even in those economies recovering, we're seeing a recovery to well below where we were in 2019. And so this thing will have a much, much longer period. And remember, most recessions, they don't need a very, very deep change, very, very massive change. You only need a subtle change. You need the rate of the momentum just to slow down and go flat, and you can go into recession. So this is quite an extraordinary experience compared to that. And I think the longevity of it will be something that persists throughout the summer and probably beyond that as well. And, you know, this goes to the the W-shaped recovery that people are talking about, because when you think about how they think about recession, really, uh, you know, a reflexive snapback does make sense to a certain degree uh, that you will go from uh, going down to going up. But then at that point, what you're saying, you stall out and then potentially you go down again. Part of that stall out, it sounds to me, has to do with, you know, change behaviors at, at a minimum. And you were talking about this in terms of some of the data that we got on uh, savings. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, the the U.S. personal savings rates now shot up to 13.1%, the highest since 1985. Um, And from basically the 1980s, it was just in this um, this steady decline to almost flat, I think it got to around about 2%. It's been going up since the great financial crash, but it had sort of peaked in that moment about three or four years ago. It's now obviously shot up more. And it goes back to the fact that the velocity of the fiscal accommodation um, is probably going to be quite low because for every dollar that gets through, only a very small amount of that will actually be spent and therefore support the economy right here, right now. You're going to get debt repaid and you're going to get savings because people have been bitten by this. I think that's going to be one of the things that really drives this. And then I think the second thing we've got to think about is the difference between liquidity um, and solvency, which is this money is being provided to keep operations going today, 
but you can't keep providing that liquidity if effectively these operations are going to fail over the medium to long term. And some of these operations will because there will be, at the margin, a change of behavior which is sufficient to take down a lot of the sectors within the services, which is what really matters here. It's the consumer that's been massively impacted. Remember, the consumer has pretty much held up the US economy through multiple decelerations, multiple situations in the past, but the consumer has always, always sort of tenaciously held in. This time it's the consumer that's been hit. And unless the consumer bounces back to exactly where they were, we are going to see a slowdown in the largest part of most developed economies. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, when you think about it coming down, then coming up somewhat reflexively, that's supposed to be the end of the recession. Then you're going to, you know, see a, a, a trace. But then the question becomes, what's the next move? Is it going to be down or are you looking at an L over time in the United States? I think it's going to be down again. And I, I don't want to, it's not because I want to be pessimistic. I think everything has happened so quickly and the response has been so fast that that initial shock, the deleveraging shock has been dealt with. And we always want to look through basically, you know, some people say you should look through the current crush in earnings and think of forward earnings. Well, earnings have never really mattered for five years. So I'm not going to look through at earnings that have never mattered because that's not, you know, earnings and corporate performance hasn't been driving the S&P for the last five years. It's not going to drive it for the next five weeks or five months. But what we've got to look through is therefore, how does the economy perform? Does it get back to where it is? Probably not. The big bit that matters is going to slow down. And the Fed and the government, and particularly the government with its fiscal, will have to move away from effectively plugging what is an enormous tear in the system, a tear in the force today, and start looking at something which is fundamentally changed. And I think things will fundamentally change. And these don't have to be massive changes. They just have to be changes on the margin. And that will be sufficient to change the directory of the, the trajectory of growth we've effectively seen over the last five or six years. You know, I, I was uh, I'm talking to Gabby Hefferson on RV Live tomorrow, and I was having a conversation with her about this. And and she's plugged in into the policy circles here in the United States and Washington. And what she told me was already now we're getting uh, the deficit hawks are saying, OK, look, you know, we've gotten through the liquidation phase, but there's only so much we're going to be able to do. So we've gotten one or two uh, bills that have come through uh, to save the economy, but they're not in, in the position to say we're going to continue to deficit spend over and over and over again. So when these, uh, these bankruptcies happen that you're talking about, there's not going to be any sort of countervailing uh, assistance to to save them. So that would suggest to me that you know we're going to be going into a new phase in, in within say the next six months as a result of that. And when you say that that's not a L uh, continuing slightly up but down, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and you know there's been a lot of talk from people like O'Leary runs Ryanair. Ryanair is one of the more profitable airlines within Europe. And he's kind of complaining, and in many ways, rightly so. I mean, a lot of people hate the fact that Ryanair are the sort of evil um, airline that has cut all the costs, but it's profitable. But they're not going to get any of the bailouts, bailouts of the like of Norwegian Air, which is non-profitable, um, Lufthansa, Air France, all the ones that have effectively right on the edge of profitability versus the likes of AIG, which is British Airways and Iberian uh, and EasyJet. These companies are saying, look, why should you give money to bail out these companies which have been right on the edge, have been inefficient, have been basically uh, not good companies, and not give us a bailout as well? And I think that the likes of Norwegian Air probably should be allowed to go under because 
I mean, I stopped, we stopped using them to come over to New York because we were getting very, very close. We were already seeing problems within that company. Mm. And this is the issue going forward is that there's a lot of companies like that. And then you look at things like, um, you know, what are the knock-on effects of that? British Airways are saying that they may no longer use Gatwick as a major hub for London. They may shift everything to Heathrow. Well, Norwegian Airways is also the third biggest carrier in Gatwick, and, and British Airways is the largest. So suddenly Gatwick Airport might see a large portion of its business disappear as well. So you just see these knock-on effects. They're not going away in the next two or three weeks. So these companies like you know, British Airways, they, if they let go of 12,000 staff now, they're not going to rehire these people in four weeks' time. So this is not going to be something that rebounds in the foreseeable future. These are going to be lasting effects. And I think that's the, why the second phase, and I, this is why I do, do think that the second phase for the equity market, at least for the majority of the world, maybe it'll be different for the US, but remember that there's more art markets in the world than just the US. And in those other markets, reality will set in and they will basically, ex they will experience this economic slowdown in their equity markets selling off. So it may become a relative trade that the US outperforms, milkshake theory again, but certainly I think that we should be rolling over. You know, you mentioned uh, it's almost tangentially something that I thought was uh, interesting uh, about what I would call malinvestment. That is, is uh, uh, we're talking about, you know, uh, the zombie economy. We're thinking Japan, because when you are basically throwing money uh, hand over fist and rescuing everyone, you're saving the least efficient, the uh, lowest productivity companies, and you're penalizing uh, the better run companies, the Ryanairs of the world that you're talking about. And ultimately, over the longer term, that's going to sap the vitality of your economy. So for Europe in particular, I think that, that that's a problem. I think it's going to be a problem everywhere. And um, Varian Perception have a chart out, which is basically showing the velocity of M2, velocity of money collapsing. And with the collapsing of that money, inflation will probably be collapsing for the next couple of years as well. The problem is that velocity of money is going down. And if we start to support the zombie companies again, because effectively that's what's happened for the last 10 years, putting into what is a very fragile economy is something that uh, Jeff Snyder has been talking about, which is the reason why this is difficult and, and why the Fed has had to react like it is reacting is because the underlying economy that we inherited before COVID struck was already very, very fragile, full of zombie companies, companies that should have gone in 2008, but were kept alive by basically free money. And that is the reason why productivity is low. And unfortunately, you need to get rid of that. You need the money to go through to the small companies, which will be the future productivity story, and allow the companies which have been a drag on productivity to finally go. Now, it may be that some of that will happen. You can see some of that happening naturally now anyway. But if you have a scattergun approach with both fiscal and monetary, so that anybody, and particularly those with a strong legal team, can get hold of the cash at the expense of the small and upcoming companies that don't, that unfortunately you perpetuate, perpetuate the model of crass productivity going forward. That means that in five years' time, things will be just as bad, if not worse. Right. Yeah. And I think the bailouts will happen. I mean, Trump has already been talking about oil bailouts. And we know for a fact that easy money was a big uh, contributor to why shale oil uh, developed uh, the oversupply that we see in the oil markets right now. You know, there's there's another thread that's hanging out there. I've been thinking about since uh, we started talking. We talked. You talked a little bit about China early on in the conversation. And I think earlier today we were talking about China. And what struck me was when you looked at the Chinese number numbers that a lot of the the uh, output that they were generating looked like it 
office inventories because you know you have the U.S. economy dropping 4.8 percent a quarter on quarter annualized. You have the European economy dropping 3.8 percent outright, and then you have the Chinese coming back to work, pumping out uh, exports, getting you know building up their supply. Where's that supply going to go? Well, that's it. This is this is where you've got these two sort of you've got the deflationary story and you've got the inflationary story in the supply chains. The deflationary story is that manufacturing parts of the economy or manufacturing countries come online and you can actually start up um, the manufacturing lines as long as they're, they're not, you know, the mining, the heavy mining and stuff like that. You can start up businesses pretty quickly, which is what China's done. So they're producing goods. But who for? And what's interesting in this old data I talked about at the very beginning, you can see that construction in China is back to 100% of where it was before, because they're obviously trying to stimulate the economy somehow. Manufacturing is back to 80%, but we know that China manufactures for the rest of the world. And yet international airline travel is at 25%. Now, I'm looking, I'm not comparing apples with apples here, but what we effectively can say is they're building manufacturing back up. But the airlines are saying that there's no real um, international economy that's picked up to take those goods. That's got to be an inventory build. What happens when you get an inventory build? Well, what happened with oil? So that's deflationary. On the other side of it is that if you get the supply chain outages, which we've seen with inst instances of farming in the US, then disruptions to supply chains, if you stimulate demand with the, with the um, monetary policy and fiscal policy, although we don't have talked about that being very low velocity, but if you stimulate enough, with supply chains being out, you will create some sort of inflationary bottlenecks going on there. But overall, this should be deflationary because it's a lot harder to stimulate that aggregate demand at the consumer than it is to restart manufacturing in basic factories and stuff like that. Do you have a strong view on what the Chinese would do? I mean, because this, this is how I'm thinking about it. So the Chinese, they went down, they came back up. There's a snapback uh, similar to the ones that we're talking about now. They're further along the curve. So now they're in this state where, that we're talking about where we're coming next. And they're already seeing that this snapback is somewhat phantom in nature because they're oversupplying. So it seems like they're going to go down again because they have to work off this inventory. Uh, the question then comes, what do they do from a policy perspective? How does the FX market uh, that? What, what are your thoughts there? Do you have any strong opinions? Well, what's happened with the Chinese is that they, or what China's done is that they, they've tried to avoid doing too much on the uh, on the monetary front, but they actually did see a very big expansion of the total social financing in absolute terms. Now, if you change, if you factor in the size of GDP versus the size of the um, the monetary stimulation, it's actually not that huge, but it's enough. So they're getting that going. But this is what China has already always done: is if you have a problem, you spend your way out of it. Now they're trying actually to be relatively. It's hard to say this responsible, but when you compare it to what they did in 2008 and what they did in 2016 after the Shanghai Accord, this is not on the same scale because they already have so many other internal imbalances. But nonetheless, this has been a shock to the system. But the problem is that they are still largely an exporting economy and the, the demand for those goods is not there. And that's before we factor in the changes in attitude that might have come about from you know the general view of, of how China has handled this. So I think overall... That's a, China's going to have to try and export deflation once more, and there's probably going to be a currency impact on that as well going forward. It's not right here, right now, but if they want to get rid of that inventory, the only way they can really do it in a world where there's no demand is by weakening their currency again.
Yeah, and uh, and what sort of knock-on effects do you think from a, a currency market? I mean, I don't know if you can say how would you play this, but outside of China, there have to be knock-on effects with the rest of Asia, obviously, with regard to competition with China when they're exporting deflation. Do you think that that's going to have any sort of FX or other types of uh, knock-on effects? Yeah, I mean, we've we've talked about the worst of the EM countries, and you know, there's always the sort of terrible ones like the Turkeys and the Argentinas. But we've talked about South Africa, Mexico, Brazil. Brazil's got some idiosyncratic issues as well. I think Korea is still one that potentially has a lot of downside in the Korean won versus the dollar. It's actually done relatively well so far, but they're much more of a manufacturing base rather than a commodity base. Now, if there's commodities to China, China's trying to start to rebuild or building programs again. Some of the commodity currencies will do. Okay, but if you're an oil exporter with oil down here, you're probably not. But I would go for some of the big manufacturing competition to China, places like Taiwan, places like, in particular, places like Korea. I think that they will struggle, but they've not done so badly this far. But I think there will be a lot of pressure going forward because I think the global growth story remains one that's subdued. So, yeah, that, that's a lot to digest. But uh, before we go, let me ask, let me get a wrap up from you. What else are you looking at? Because we're not going to be talking to you for the rest of the week. Uh, what's, what's on your plate for going forward that we need to think about? Well, we've had three central banks this week, and today was the ECB. And the ECB, I mean, they, they made some tweaks. It looked like they're kind of, you know, they're stepping up a little bit more. And um, Lagarde tried to say, in fact, basically, she stayed on script to avoid saying uh, anything ridiculous like she did last time. But I'm looking at really um, yields in Europe, and I'm looking at those Italian yields versus German yields. German yields came down today. Maybe that's the month end playing at play once more. But it's when you look at some of the stuff around Europe, I'm looking at the Spanish IBEX. And I know a lot of people don't like technicals like like head and shoulders, but there is a head and shoulders of such fantastic enormity on the IBEX that we've bounced off over the last couple of weeks. We've seen it with the European banks. The banks try and bounce, but fail every time, and they underperform US banks forever, or they have, it seems like it's been forever. Europe has fault lines. Did the euro rally today because they thought Lagarde did a good job, or did the euro rally today because actually they're not going to provide much liquidity. And the market mentality still, if the Fed does loads of liquidity and the ECB does not do as much liquidity, then that should mean that the dollar goes down versus the euro. Now, I've argued that the more the Fed does, the more I like the US because they've got my back and I'm going to buy US assets. I think that the euro will roll over again. So there's these, there's these touch points in Europe that I think we've got to watch for. BTP versus Bund yields spreads, those European banks, and the IBEX, all of those look like they could be getting ready for a, a bit of a shit show going forward. And I do think that European banks, a lot of the Eurozone banks will end up being nationalized. Yeah, uh, I hate to leave it on that bad note, but you, it makes a lot of sense, Roger. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and uh, look forward to talking to you again next week. No, good to speak to you. I'll speak to you next week. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.